Praise him. Amen. I love that song. I remember I was uh, missing you guys last year. Over a year ago, I was in the hospital because of COVID. I was by myself, and this song just kept on popping in my head. They did me a favor. They let us play it that Sunday that I came back. I was just thanking God so much. Go to the rock. Well, that's what this sermon is going to be about. It's going to be about listening to the rock. And I want to just thank the Lord for putting a word in my mouth. And I've just been fascinated with the gospel of Mark. I've been fascinated by it because there's connections in the gospels that I just wasn't seeing clearly. And it wasn't just me because Mark is about not seeing Jesus clearly. In fact, that's the whole point of Mark, that most people don't see Jesus clearly. You see, Jesus is the Son of God sent to suffer, but everyone has a hard time accepting this a lot of times because their preconceived ideas with Jesus conflict with who Jesus really is. The disciples wanted Jesus to be a military leader that would take over the Roman Empire and make them nobles. The religious leaders saw Jesus as an insurrectionist that was upsetting their careful work to rebuild the Israel nation. And the crowd saw him as a prophet, a fascinating prophet, one who taught with authority, but a prophet nonetheless. Nobody truly saw Jesus clearly. So we get into Mark 8. If you look at Mark 8, chapter, verse 22, there's this odd healing that goes on there, and there's no other healing like it in the whole Bible. And the reason there's no other healing like it is because nowhere else does Jesus heal in multiple stages. Jesus heals a man, and the first thing he does is he heals a man, and he partially sees. And then after that, Jesus completes the healing, and then he can fully see. And we may say, oh, that's a curiosity, that's interesting, but it's not placed in the Bible just to be a curiosity. It's meant to point us to understand an analogy about Jesus, because in the very next section, you think the disciples see. Jesus said, who do the crowd say that I am? They got all these answers. Who am I? Who do you say I am? You're the Christ. Praise God, Peter. Praise God. Only God can reveal that to you. Very next section and I'm going to suffer and die. Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter rebukes Jesus. And then, you know, it's almost like a lawsuit. Peter rebuked Jesus in the counter rebuke. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter thought he saw clearly, but he didn't see clearly enough. He went from, you are the Christ, Blessed are you, Peter, to get behind me, Satan. And Jesus follows it up, and he says, listen, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
if you want to follow me, I got news for you guys. I'm not the military conqueror that you think I am. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer, and if you follow me, you will too. But it's worth it. It's worth it. There's no amount of suffering that you can experience following after Jesus that won't be worth the trade. And it is not for no reason. There is a promise at the end of that suffering. And so at the end of it, the very first verse of chapter 9, he says, some of you will not see death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's an appetizer. An appetizer of his glory, you will see the kingdom of God with power. Now what is the kingdom of God? Some people say it's heaven. That's technically not true because we don't see heaven in the next chapter. The kingdom of God is the place where God is ruled and praised for ruling. The kingdom of God is the place where God's presence is only to bless and not to curse. The kingdom of God is a place where all creatures willingly submit to his benevolent rule. And in that sense, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, he's not talking about heaven. Oh, heaven is where it's fully felt. And so if you say heaven, you're not 100% wrong. But when you talk about the kingdom of God, what you're talking about is, are you submitting to the rule of God? And Jesus says, you will see the kingdom of God come with power. And that intrigues us. And that's when we get into the next section, which we read. In the very first verses, we see Jesus shows the glory of God in the body of a man. They go up this mountain, and you know about mountains if you read the Old Testament. The mountain is a spiritual place. A mountain is not a normal place. You don't just normally just go into mountains. Why? Because mountains are dangerous. Normal people don't just waste their time just going up in mountains. But historically, throughout the people of Israel's time, people have gone into the mountain to meet with who? To meet with their God. And Jesus is taking his people of the mountain. He takes a core group, Peter, James, and John. Not all the apostles, just these three, the core of the apostles, the leaders of the apostles. And he takes three. And three is an interesting number. What does the scripture say? Where two or three, let a word be established, right? So two or three, they, they're there to be witnesses of something. And he brings them in this mountain, and all of a sudden, he's transfigured. Now, you know, I love my fantasy. And every time that you get in fantasy, there's this idea in Asian culture about somebody having a true form. Right? Bad guys often say, you, you think you beat me now, but you haven't seen my true form. <laughs> and so you got this idea that in Asian culture, what you see is not always what is that there can be a true form. And we see this in lots of other places in Scripture, right? Satan is described as a dragon. He might look like a beautiful man, but he can transform into a dragon. That's what he really is, right? 
His appeal is his beauty, but his reality is his destructiveness. And here we see Jesus, he appears to be a man. And I'm not saying he's not a man, but he's more than man. And as Jesus appears, so do others appear with him. There's Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses appear. And I think we can almost get a little bit of jitters just reading this passage. Because who hasn't wanted to meet with Elijah and Moses? Elijah's is the preeminent prophet. He is God's voice to the people of Israel to turn them from their sins. And Moses was the law. He was the one who led them from slavery to freedom. But it's interesting that Jesus meets them on the mountain, and it's almost showing that he kind of transcends, their experience transcends what Elijah and Moses had. Because when Elijah met with God on the mountain, it was a still, quiet voice. Remember that story? Fire appeared, but God wasn't in the fire. An earthquake appeared, God wasn't in the earthquake. Then a still, quiet voice. But they see more than just a still, quiet voice. God speaks with him. Moses goes into the mountain, and he asks God, show me your glory. And God says, that's a hard request. I'll show you, but I can only show you my back. And he passes before Moses, and all of a sudden, he says all these words about who he is. And those words, all Moses, and he hears all these things. He falls down in worship, but he only sees God's back. These men see God's face. And these two, representing the law and the prophets, are talking with Jesus. It may seem odd to us, but maybe it wasn't so odd to them because maybe that's what they had been doing that we didn't see their whole life. Maybe every time Moses went into that tent, he was talking with his Lord. Maybe every time Elijah was about to prophesy, and you would just see him turn his ear a little bit before he spoke. Maybe that was Jesus whispering in his ear. They were talking with Jesus. And Peter is terrified. He just start talking. Right now we know he's talking some nonsense. But he just is scared. And, and we can understand that. Why? Because there's a sudden transformation. Jesus is more than what they, he appeared he was. These appearance of these heroes, right? You just got your heroes just popping up right in front of you. You're not ready for that. You're not dressed for that. You're not prepared for that. They're just there. And so in his surprise, he seeks to honor Elijah and Moses on the same level as Jesus. And that's wrong. It's so wrong. I want to skip down to verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Interesting. Don't tell anybody what you saw. It's a secret. Until how long? Until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. It's interesting that he holds them to this promise of secrecy until after he raises from the dead. You get this idea that 
there are some things about Jesus that just can't be known yet. But when he says, hold this until I raise from the dead, that's a bitter pill for them to swallow. Because Christ's death didn't fit their system of thought. They thought that Jesus was going to be this conqueror, and he was going to rule the nation, and the people that were closest to him were going to, of course, be the ones that got rewarded the most. And so, they challenged Jesus. Well, if this is true, why did the scribes say, Elijah comes first? It's a challenge to Jesus. It's based off a misinterpretation of the Old Testament scripture where they know that a prophet will come before the Messiah and they assume that it's Elijah. They think there will be a literal return of Elijah and they're so stuck on that literal return of Elijah that they missed who John the Baptist was. And I just have a question for the apostles when they ask that. When did y'all start taking the scribes seriously? You see, people will grasp at anything to make something fit their system of thought. If you look throughout the Gospels, you'll notice that the scribes and the apostles are always enemies. In fact, in the very next section, we're going to see that the scribes and the apostles were arguing. And now they're taking the words of the scribes and using them to challenge their Lord. And Jesus gently corrects them. He said, Elijah came already. That was John the Baptist. Now, at this point, John had already been executed by King Herod. And if you look at John's life, yes, he was, in fact, another Elijah. He was the enemy of a king, just like Elijah was enemy of Ahab. Ahab wanted to kill Elijah. Herod wanted to kill John. But he respected him just like Ahab respected Elijah. They had a respect and a disdain for these prophets because they spoke truth. And kings are not used to people speaking truth, especially calling them out on a carpet like that. It's just, you don't just do that to rich, powerful men like that. It's a certain way you're supposed to frame it, right? My Lord, maybe you're mistaken. Elijah didn't come like that. You, listen, you're a fool, just like your dad is. And you're leading these people straight to hell. What? You came in my throne room talking like that? Three years is not going to rain, buddy. All right, execute that guy. Can't find him. His son had the same mentality. Sent people to arrest Elijah three times. Fire came down, consumed him. He just still kept sending people. And the whole point is, is that both times kings wanted to kill the prophet. But this time prophet dies. And a lot of people think about John as the forerunner of Jesus in his message. Some people even connect the forerunner status with his baptism. But how many people connect the forerunner status with John's death? Elijah did come. But they did with him whatever they wanted. As it is written of him. They misinterpreted who Jesus was. The clarity that we get in a passage comes only from the Father's voice. 
Look back at verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them. Clouds are always a symbol of God. It is said in the Old Testament that God led them by a pillar of cloud. In several prophecies, it said that God said he's going to ride on the clouds. Whenever the apostles looked for Jesus to return, they said he was coming riding on the clouds. And all of a sudden, we get this voice from the clouds. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Only Jesus alone. After he speaks, the cloud is lifted. And they can only see Jesus. The cloud lifts to reveal Jesus alone as God and man. Jesus is God as seen as his transformation. Jesus transformed into something that was more than a man. His preeminence over the law and the prophets. Who else would the law and the prophets defer to other than God? But he's a man. They can see that he's a man. He eats and drinks with them. He feels pain. And he can and he will die. He's man in that he will die, but he's God in that he can resurrect himself. The Father's voice is a correction to Peter who wanted to equate Jesus with Elijah and Moses because Jesus has no equal. It's a correction to those who are trying to force Jesus into their framework of thinking because you don't force God into your framework. You let God create your framework. And he says this important message, listen to him. Listen to him. Now, afterwards, Jesus goes to this wild scene where there's this great crowd and scribes are arguing with the apostles. Immediately, the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? There's this great contention going on. And it turns out that they're having this problem where they can't properly rebuke this demon. They had taken over a little boy. And what you see about this passage is that this passage is very symmetrical because God is trying to point us to something. You see, you see lack of faith at the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage. Lack of faith because at the beginning you're rebuking Jesus. And at the end you can't rebuke a demon. The Father's voice reveals that Jesus alone ought to be sought and heard, but this is difficult for us to accept. It's easy to say, but it is hard to receive. Preconceptions blind us to the truth, and we sometimes try to warp the Bible to fit our system. But thank God, because without his voice, there will be no clarity. Let me speak more about that. Because Peter's misconception was that Jesus was a great man. And in this lies almost every religion in the world. Islam, some forms of Catholicism, Buddhism. 
In fact, if you go into the public sphere, people will quote Jesus, even people who are not Christians, because they have a genuine respect for Jesus. You could say that Jesus is the most respected man on the face of the earth, but not everybody worships him as God. Jesus is more than a great man, but see, it feels good, and I can kind of agree to disagree with you about that and just let you live, right? I mean, you're not going as bad as disrespecting Jesus. I get that, right? You're not bearing your teeth at Jesus. You're not like the art museum and putting a cross in something that's disgusting, right? You're not disrespecting my Lord, so I kind of could let you go, and people think that that's good, Oftentimes, we fall into the same misconception as Peter when we get distracted. I kind of think about there was an old NFL offense, and all they did was do all these shifts before the play. And if anybody know what a shift is, a shift is where the quarterback will do a symbol and everybody just move where they are, except for the offensive line, they can't move, right? But everybody else will just move, and then they keep on moving. They move once. Then they'll move to this formation. Then they'll move to that formation. They'll do a three or four transformations, and then they'll snap the ball and hand the ball off and run down the middle. And a lot of times, the defense will get caught by the distraction. The same thing happens in the NFL now. Somebody will just run in motion right past the quarterback. And you got to worry about that because he could hand the ball to that guy. And now you got to think about, oh, he can get outside of me. But a lot of times, that guy just runs by, he hands it to the guy, and they run up the middle. Oftentimes, as Christians, we can get distracted by all the motion. Like Peter, we can see the appearance of Elijah and Moses and miss what it truly means and miss the ball going right past us. Oftentimes, there's a second way of falling into this misconception, and that is believing in God but not Christ. I go out and witness oftentimes, and I talk to people, and I say, hey, you believe in Jesus Christ? Yeah, I believe in God. That's not what I said. That's not what I said. But you see, it's easy for people to say they believe in God because you can define God however you want to. If you talk further to some people, some people got God being a woman. Some people, one dude told me God is a black woman. I don't know how that happened. I don't know where that transformation of his God and my God, how, where it was missed. But the point is, is that don't accept somebody just saying believing in God and think that that's your God. Because people can define God however they want to. We need to get specific here. Do you believe in the Christ, Jesus, as described in the Bible, and not just Jesus as you describe it? Because we got hippie Jesus. We got environmental Jesus. We got Jesus loves everybody Jesus. We got Jesus hate everybody Jesus. We got all kind of Jesuses for all kind of folks. It's almost like Santa Claus now. You know, you go into somebody's house, they got black Santa. They got Hispanic Santa. They got gay Santa. They got all kind of Santas. There's a Santa for everybody out there. And some people think they can do that with Jesus. You know, you just kind of culturalize Jesus. You get Jesus. You look in some church, you got a black Jesus. You got a white Jesus. You got Listen, how about we just worship the Jesus of the Bible? You see, when you make your own Jesus, you're no different than the guy who, back in the day, 2,000 years ago, he makes some iron, and then he a fashion into a little monkey-looking thing, and he'd be like, ooh, that's God. When you fashion Jesus into your own image that you want him to be, that's what you're doing. You're worshiping an idol. We do that in so many different ways. 
But the last one, I think, is the biggest one that afflicts our church. We get distracted by the good, and we miss the God. I can't tell you how many people don't miss church for something educational. How many people don't miss had their kids prioritize school over church, had their kids prioritize sports over church, had their people prioritize politics over church. All of these are good things. I didn't say a single sinful thing. But I hear a lot of times, and that's why the room gets silent, because we all can think about times that we've done that. Well, we've been distracted by the good, and we miss the God. We can kind of be like Martha. Remember when Martha had Jesus come into her house? She was cooking some good food. You knew she was, right? Because everybody was sitting there. They were nobody talking about the food. They was loving the food, but Jesus was teaching. Jesus was teaching. And it wasn't the time to eat. Yeah, you can worry about, yeah, you need to eat. Don't get me wrong. But how many times is Jesus going to be at your house teaching? And how many times in your life will you have a chance to eat? See, it was bad priorities. It's not that food is bad. It's not that serving people is bad. It's not that washing the dishes is bad. Remember one time we were finna go after service at somebody's house and they knew we were coming so they missed church to set up dinner. And I was just so bothered by that. If I would have known that would have happened, I wouldn't have even accepted their invitation because they kind of missed the point. I wanted to build a relationship based on our bond with Christ. They just wanted to have a good-looking dinner. We can be distracted by the good and miss the God. On the other hand, we have the misconception as we go down the mountain. And that is, if Jesus doesn't fit in my system, I don't know if I like that Jesus. I remember back in our church here, Sweet Communion, we had a problem with that once. I remember back in the day, we really had a real strong stance against alcohol. And so we literally went as far as to have Jesus turn the water into grape juice. (laughs) Y'all remember that? We used to believe that, right? And the reason we believed that, because we didn't want to believe Jesus was turning water into something that's alcoholic that people might abuse. We literally was trying to change that wine into some form of grape juice. They couldn't get drunk off of that because it was just grape juice. No, no, it was wine. Yeah, it was alcohol. That's okay. That's okay. It's not okay to get wasted off of it. Yeah, I get that. It's not okay to abuse it. Some of us took vows. We can't drink alcohol at all. For us, it's not okay. But for you, it may be. You know what? If you're a saint and you go home and you drink a beer, you know that's not a sin. But it didn't fit my system because I wanted an absolute where God didn't make an absolute. I think about the old, I don't know if it came from the Puritans. I don't know where it came from. It maybe came from just fundamentalists in general. But they literally (laughs) converted the Song of Solomon into just the analogy of Christ in the church. What's wrong with a man having a sexual relationship with his wife? That's what it really is about. And there's nothing wrong with that. But they were so uncomfortable with this idea of talking about a sexual union that 
They try to convert that passage, and that's why you have hymns talking about the lily of the valley, he's the bright morning star. That's wrong. And I get it. You're uncomfortable about that. You don't want to talk about that in church when you'll see a kid in there, you know, drawing with his crayon, and then he hear me talking about the S word. He's like, huh? Now I got to explain something. Oh, my goodness. Pastor, you done messed everything up. My goodness. But because it don't fit your framework, you try to change it. I was thinking about years ago, Jesse Jackson, and he done done this many times before. But Jesse Jackson was unfaithful to his wife. Something like that happened. I can't remember the particulars of it. But I knew know this. A reporter interviewed my dad about it. You remember his dad? And so the reporter had a framework. The reporter's framework was black pastor support black pastor. That's the reporter's framework, and there was nothing my dad could say that was going to upset that. Dad was talking about sin. Dad was talking about he needed to repent. It didn't matter what my dad said. He was talking for 40 minutes with this person. And finally, he said, they said, but if, she, if he repented, would you forgive him? And he said, yeah, I would. And then he went on to say more, and, he's, and that, this is how the interview went. Pastor Kenner said this is a sin, but he would forgive Jesse Jackson. <laughs> that was the report. It was so false. It was the first instance of fake news I had ever seen. But at the end of the day, why did the reporter report that? Because she couldn't accept, I don't know if it was a he or she, but he or she couldn't accept that somebody would say something that was outside of their framework. Of course he had to support Jesse Jackson. They both black. Okay. See, God's purpose is different than that. It is to focus on who Christ is. I think about this. At work, I manage drivers. And one of the things I like to tell my guys is to keep your eyes moving. Why do I want them to keep their eyes moving? Because as you focus on one thing, your peripheral vision gets worse. You could try it yourself. Put your finger up in front of you and just stare at it. And everything behind it becomes blurry. But you see, that's exactly what God wants us to do with Jesus. He wants us to focus so much on him that everything else starts to become indistinct. I'm not saying there's nothing else in the room. But I'm simply saying that there's nothing else that matters more. I think about the story of Peter in the storm as he's walking across the waters to Jesus. He starts to look at the waves. He probably heard a thunderbolt. And he's sitting there and he's saying to himself, wow, it's crazy out here. You know what? It was crazy before you walked out in the water. And it will be crazy after. But you were walking fine when you were looking at Jesus. But when you took your eyes off of Jesus, you lost your source of power. The point of this passage is that we would see the necessity of Jesus' humiliation and his glory. He had to die that we might live. He had to live that we might live. Without being God, he couldn't raise himself. Without being God, he couldn't give us 
purpose. Without being God, he couldn't prepare works for us to do beforehand. Without being God, he couldn't sit at the right hand of God to intercede for us. But without being man, he couldn't die. Without being man, he couldn't understand our struggle or represent us perfectly or fulfill the law of God on our behalf. But more than that is this image of listening to him. Now, I want to conclude with this. The Holy Spirit, after some point, the apostles remembered this. Remember, they didn't say this at the time. They kept it secret because Jesus charged them to. They kept this thing secret until he rose, and then they finally understood it. And the Holy Spirit kept that with them. And I want you to understand that maybe when they remembered it, they was a little bit embarrassed. And you might have that too. Can you ever think back to something? You ever thought back to something and you feel embarrassed about yourself years ago about something that at that time maybe you didn't feel embarrassed about? You're like, I can't believe I did that. Whoo, I was crazy. Maybe you don't have that as much as I do, but <laughs> I done done a lot of crazy things. But the Holy Spirit will bring it into remembrance for you. And I hope he brings this message into remembrance for you for the simple purpose that you will listen to Jesus Christ. I hope that you remember that it is the Father's voice who gives clarity. Notice it's not the intellect of the apostles. We got too many people focusing on their own intellect to provide clarity for others. We got people who are philosophers. We got people on YouTube. We got people on Google. We got Wikipedia. We got this. We got that. Everybody try to provide clarity out of their own intellect. And the reason for that is because they want to uplift themselves. A lot of times they just want to get rich off of you. But it is the Father's voice alone that provides clarity. And I think about it in this sense. If it wasn't for the Bible describing this and what Jesus said, we would be all distracted about Elijah and all distracted by Moses just like they were. But it is the Father's voice that says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son who will die and raise for you. This is my beloved son who the law and prophets culminate in and point to. This is my beloved son. Earlier in the book he said, and whom I am well pleased. But here he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving me a word to speak, Lord. It's just a praise to be able to preach and teach your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit just putting this word together. We thank you, Lord, just like as Mark was trying to point out, that we can often misconceive who Jesus truly is. And oftentimes, we can follow the path of the religions of the world, and make Jesus out to be just a good man. Sometimes we can moralize the things that Jesus say and focus on the good and not on the God. Other times, we want to fit Jesus into our framework of thought that we already had before we came to the passage, trying to transform Jesus to fit our mind instead of letting our mind be transformed by the work of Jesus Christ. But Father... 
you spoke and your message was clear. And you just have three words for us. Listen to him. And so, Lord, we submit to your will. We humbly, humbly acknowledge, Lord, that we don't know the truth. We are not wise. We are not geniuses. We need your word to know truth. We need you to provide clarity in our lives. And when you reveal things to us, we will believe in that. We will have faith in what you have revealed to us. We will not trust in man. We will not trust ourselves. We will trust in you alone. In your name we pray. Amen.